This morning we are continuing our I'm Fine Thanks series where we've been going through the story of Elijah uh, and him getting to a place of depression and getting to a place of anxiety and we're actually learning from some of his mistakes and the things that he's done. Uh, in the last couple of weeks we've talked about rest, we've talked about physical rest, we've talked about spiritual rest and then last week we talked about community and how it's important to have the right people uh, around you. This week, our message is entitled Hiding, Hiding. We're going to be in four main passages of Scripture. John, if you can throw those up there. (laughs) These are the four that we're going to be in today. Again, this message is entitled Hiding, and I'm going to show you why. As soon as you jot that down, go ahead and turn to 1 Kings chapter 19. I'm going to tell you that, that spiritual warfare is real, okay? And, and if, you're, if you've been feeling attacked or you've been feeling heavier over these last few weeks, there's a reason for that, and it's because you're taking new ground and you're taking steps in this in these fight with anxiety and this fight with depression. And I want to tell you that there is a reason that you're here this morning. You need to hear this morning. And, and Jesus is so happy that you're here. I'm so happy that you're here. We're so happy that you're here, that you joined us for worship this morning. 1 Kings 19, I'm going to start in verse 3. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. That's where we talked about rest. He ran for his life. He ran until he could not run anymore. He couldn't breathe anymore. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there. That's where we're talking about we have to have community. He left his community, he left his relationships, and decided to do it alone, and it didn't work out. We have to have people around us. While he himself went a day's journey into the desert. This is where we're going to stop this morning. He himself went a day's journey into the desert. There are very few reasons that people would go a day's journey into the desert. Uh, unless you like live in Arizona... I cannot really think of why you would do that. There's just, no one really wants to just go and spend time in the desert, especially alone. If we were going and we were taking like a tour of Israel, we're taking a tour of Egypt, that's one thing. We have all of us, we have a bus, we have water. He leaves everything, he leaves his community and goes a day's journey into the desert, into the wilderness. There's a reason that he's running, and I believe that he's hiding. And I think this is something that we deal with very, very often. This is something that I deal with very, very often, and I'm going to show you why, uh, and, and I think there's one main reason that we hide. Uh, we, and again, looking at the story of Elijah, he, he's running, and he's running away from what's coming after him. He's running away from what he's facing, He's running away from the things that he's done, the people that he's seen. He's running away from what could be done to him. He is running away from his past. He's running as far away as he can from what is haunting him, what is following him. And I believe Elijah's dealing with something that we deal with on a daily basis, something that I deal with on a daily basis, and that's shame. Shame. Shame is something we struggle with so often uh, and, and it inevitably leads us to dealing with anxiety and dealing with depression. And it's kind of like pride. You know, when we talked about pride, I said a lot of people are proud that they don't have pride. Like, that's, it's, it's right there. 
a lot of people are ashamed that they feel shame. And, and we don't want to talk about it. We don't want to bring it out. And, and even just the thought that I struggle with shame is something that I'm ashamed to even say or to even bring up, dare to talk about in church. But this is something very important because it is, it, it's extremely easy to spiral downwards when shame is in the picture. And shame can easily take over your entire story. When I was in high school, I've told you a little bit of my, my testimony, but when I was in high school, I struggled a lot. Uh, and I, I sinned a lot. And I did a lot of things I shouldn't have done. And I said a lot of things I shouldn't have said. And I was with the wrong people. And I was, I, I was just a mess, <laughs> just, just a complete mess. But I'm also a pastor's kid. And what that means is every single thing that I've ever done will inevitably lead to the pastor. It just happens. It, I, I don't know how or why. Thank God that he covers our sins. You know, the Bible says love covers a multitude of sins sometimes. But in my case, it did not. In my case, his love was like, you've got it. We've got to deal with this. And so I remember one day getting out of school and, and looking at my phone. I've shared this story, but I looked at my phone and it said, Randy Turner, and it said all these missed calls. And I thought, that's not good. That is, that's really bad. And I, I went and I talked to my dad and, and he knew everything that I had done, everything that I had said and everything that had happened. And, and so we talked about it and, and he was gracious and he was kind. But not everyone was. And I'm going to tell you that the church can be one of the harshest places to be honest about your sin. And that's bad. We need to change it. This church specifically is great about that. We are welcoming and we are loving and we are kind. But the church in general, Christians, we have got to be good about, hey, you know what? No one's perfect. In fact, in this building, if you're perfect, you need to leave because you don't need to be here. There's no purpose. Leave. We are all broken. We're all hurting. We're all sinners. Don't come here if you're perfect. You're not. It's good to be here. We need, we need to be. And I don't know. I'm on this tangent. Anyways, the Christians and the people that were in my life at that time were some of the harshest people I've ever met. And, I, and, and word spread very quickly throughout high school and throughout church groups, and through all these, all these things. And I began hearing things about me, stuff that I had done that I didn't even know I had done because the story had gotten so twisted. I was like, what? I, who, who did it? Me? No. But it just happens. And I felt so much shame. And this is something that has lingered still to this day. Where when I'm certain places in Abilene, or I'm certain places, and I'm around certain people, I'm like, very, very cautious, and I catch myself walking with my head down because I don't want to be seen and I don't want to see anybody. And we deal with shame on a daily basis. And shame is not just things that you have done. It might be things that have been done to you that you feel shame about and things that have been said about you that you feel shame about may not even be true, but other people can cause you to have shame. I want to tell you this morning that there is freedom from shame. There is freedom from shame, and I'm going to talk today about how. How do we get free from this? But we live in a culture that loves to shame. We do. If you don't believe me, I need you to be on social media for about two seconds today, and you will see. We, we love to shame. We shame people we disagree with. We shame people we agree with sometimes. We just love to shame people. 
And we don't even necessarily realize that we're doing it, but sometimes we're doing it. I'm going to tell you that shame is a very common factor that leads into people taking their lives because they feel so much shame and so much ridicule and so much hurt from others. And I want us to break that. I want us to not be a part of that. We don't need to be a part of that. We need to be the people that are saying, hey, you know what? Be honest about where you're at. We're loving. Jesus is so gracious. And he's going to love you straight through this. That's Jesus. That's what he does. But shame infects us, and it infects us really deeply down. Really deeply down? That's not even English. I went to public school. I'm sorry. Sometimes you got to watch out. But we get to this place where we may have done things, and we may have said things, and we may have hung around the wrong people, and we did the wrong things, and we feel shame from that because we don't want to talk about it. We bury it deep down. Or something happened when I was 10 years old, and 40 years later, I still am not the same person, and I've never talked about it, and I feel so much shame from that. And I can't stand the church because of that. I can't stand other people because of that. I can't stand my family because of that. This may cause shame as well. It's not just things that you've done. It may be things that have been done to you. And there is freedom from shame. There is freedom from shame. And there's freedom from guilt. And we're going to define the two uh, because, because this is important. The Bible says that he wants to free us from shame and from guilt. We often associate these two things to mean the same thing. They're vastly different. Guilt is a position of being accountable for our actions and shortcomings. It's a legal term. It, it makes you take responsibility for things that you've done. For example, let's say I walk into the bookstore and I steal a Bible, which is weird, but let's say that I did that. And I get caught and I go to court. The judge will look at me and he will say, you are guilty. It's my position. I have been found guilty. I did this wrong thing. I have to, I have to do the time since I did the crime, right? That's a position. Shame, on the other hand, is recreating your identity around your sin and around your shortcomings. That's what shame is. And so shame is me. I am guilty. I did steal this book. I did do this. But because I did this, I am a thief. And everything I do is wrong. And I will always be a thief. And I've created my identity and reshaped my identity around my sin and around my hurt and around the pain. That's shame. And Jesus says he wants us to be free from both of those, guilt and shame. And there's one cure, there's one antidote to both of these things. And we're going to get there in a second. But first I want to show you the first time humanity hid, Genesis chapter 2. The first time humanity hid. And this story cracks me up every time I read it. Humanity has been ignorant from day one. We just... Day one, ignorance. Chapter 2, verse 25. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Keep going to chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the other wild animals the Lord God has made. And he said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. You must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, 
She took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man, where are you? Do you think God's actually confused about where they are? No, it's a test to see how ignorant they are. And they fall. Where, where are you? Hello, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. Watch this. This is a powerful verse. He said, who told you that you were naked? Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some of the fruit from the tree and I ate it. Culture has not changed. <laughs> this woman did it. This woman gave and this, we, we are in a, this is not even in my notes, this is free. We're in a blaming, victimizing culture where everything is always somebody else's fault. Sometimes it's your fault. It's okay to be like, you know what, God, I did, I did eat it. Don't blame it on the woman, it was me, I did eat the fruit. Adam, come on. Then the Lord said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. So everyone's passing blame. It's, it's not Adam's fault. It's not Eve's fault. It's God's fault because he put the serpent there, and he put the woman there, and it's the woman's fault, and it's the serpent's fault. Okay, no. God is not ignorant. But the point I want to I point out to you is that they decided to hid. And here's something interesting in Genesis chapter 2. It says, they were naked, and they felt no shame. In the perfect place, in perfect communion with God, in a perfect unity with God, the dream place, this place was beautiful and had everything they could ever want. And in that place, he could have said, they felt no fear. They felt no pain. They were naked and they felt no any other adjective, but he chose shame. They were naked and they felt no shame in the perfect place with God. He desired us to never feel shame. God, he, he never wanted us to have to walk in shame, never wanted us to have to experience shame, which means that the enemy in his craftiness wants you to experience one thing, shame. The thing God said, I never wanted you to experience. He wants you to walk in and live in daily because he's tricky. And he's always active. He's always doing this. He's always coming after us. So we have to be on guard. But Jesus loves us so much and God loves us so much. He says, in this perfect place, you won't have to experience that. That's how powerful shame is. He, I don't want you to ever have to feel that. But the enemy is actively warring for us to feel this shame and for us to feel condemned. The enemy, if you are saved, you are, you are a follower of Jesus, he cannot have your soul. He cannot take your soul. He cannot take your heart. What he can take is, is, is your innocence. He can make you feel shame. And he can make you live like you are in hell on earth because of it. And it will affect every area of your life. That's his goal. And I want in my life to put my foot down and say, enough is enough. This is ridiculous. 
I'm not doing this anymore because Jesus says I'm free from this. And I want that for you as well. The enemy wanted to make Adam and Eve feel shame. He wanted to make them anxious and depressed. And there's a way that he did it, and it's right here. He asked the question, did God really say? Did God really say that? He begins questioning the authority and the words of God. This is happening in the church and in the world more now than it ever has been. And I'm going to tell you how, and I'm going to get political, and don't boo me. This is what's happening. Did God really say that about marriage? Did He really say that? Did He, did he really say that this is the way it's supposed to be? This is being questioned. This is being questioned within the church, within modern-day Christians and churches. They're asking, did God really say that about marriage? Did God really say that about abortion? Did God really say that about tithing? Did God really say that about sin? Did God really say? And the problem is, when we don't know what God really says, we will live in a mind that believes lies. And that leads us to feeling shame about me, about God, about things that I believe, about things that have been done to me and said about me. We have to know, did God really say? And what did God really say? I know normally I do three points. I try and do that because it, it helps you to pay attention. Today I've got five points, but they're going to be short, so just hang in there. Some of you are thinking, no, I'm gone. <laughs> no, these are short points. But there's three really quick things that we need to know that God says about us, especially when it comes to shame. Number one, whose am I? Whose am I? If we don't feel like we belong anywhere, of course we're going to feel anxious and of course we're going to struggle with depression. If I feel like I don't belong, if I feel like I, there's no place for me, of course we're going to feel that. But I'm going to tell you that the Bible has a lot to say about whose you are. He says, I bought you with a price. I paid it. You're mine. You're family. You're not a slave you're an heir to the kingdom. The Bible says that we're even killed with Jesus. We have the same inheritance that Jesus has. You talk about family. <laughs> That's the epitome. We get the same inheritance. We're heirs with Jesus in the kingdom of God. We have a place. We have a new name. We belong with Him in perfect unity and in perfect relationship with Jesus. You belong. Whose am I? Number two, whose image am I made in? Whose image am I made in? In schools, and if you work in education, I'm not, I'm not bashing you in, in one way. Not, not 1% am I doing this. Am I talking about you? I'm maybe people that create curriculum and those kind of things. But in schools, we are forced by law to talk about something that says, Millions and millions of years ago, we were monkeys. And from those monkeys, we ended up turning into beetles. And from that beetle, my great-great-great-grandfather beetle, then turned into like a fence post. And then from that fence post, suddenly my parents started walking. <laughs> like, what? Huh? What, is that? <laughs> what does that mean? 
But here's the reality. If we don't believe that we were made in the image of something all holy and all wonderful and all beautiful, of course we're going to feel depressed. If I feel like I came from a fence post, of course. If I feel like I, I, didn't, I didn't come from anything, I, didn't, I, don't, I don't belong to anyone, of course I'm going to feel that. Church, we have to begin teaching. You are made in God's image, all holy, all powerful God. You are made in His image. He looks at you and He sees a reflection of Himself. Think about that. God looks down at you and He says, that's me, it's a mirror. You are made in His image. It wasn't a mistake. It's, it's, it's just mind-boggling that we're teaching Kids, you don't have to value yourself because you know what? Millions of years ago, there was just, it just, and, and there your ancestors were. It was no plan. You were just here. How, how are we supposed to feel good about ourselves if that's the case? If that's where I came from, how am I going to feel good about myself? You are made in God's image, in his image. That, that, oh. That verse just gets, I almost started crying. That verse is, it's incredible to think about that. We've got to teach kids their value, teach ourselves our own value of what God says about us and whose image we're made in. All right, number three, what am I here for? If we feel like we have no destiny and when I die, I'm just going to die, if that's what we feel like, then of course we're going to feel depressed and of course we're going to feel anxious. What am I here for? If it's nothing, if there's no meaning in life, no wonder we struggle so much as a society. There is a purpose and there is a reason that you're here. God has a plan for you. The Bible says he has things he wants to do in you and through you that Jesus didn't even do. More than what Jesus did on earth, he wants to do in you and through you. There is a reason that you're here. And when you die, you get to spend eternity with Jesus, the Father that loves you so, so much. You get to spend it with Him. You don't just die and stay. Jesus overcame the grave so that you could too. That's it. All right, those are the first three. Now, we have those answers some things that God really did say, and that's important. But now I want to talk about the way to get free from shame, the way to get free from feeling and, and reshaping our identity around what, what uh, has happened to me, to who Jesus is. And the answer to cancel guilt and to cancel shame is grace. Grace. So, point number four, I guess we're on. Grace cancels guilt. Grace cancels guilt. We are no longer guilty because of Jesus and because of his grace. If you don't know Jesus, I'm going to tell you a quick story in about 45 seconds. It's going to change your life if you've never heard about Jesus before. But Jesus is the Son of God, fully man, fully God, came to earth, lived life as a man, died, was beaten, hung on a cross, was crucified, and while he was hanging on that cross, the sin of the world was thrown on him. Every wrong thing, everything you've done, everything that people were doing then, the people that were hanging next to him, the sin of the world was thrown onto him. 
and he died, and he rose again. And if you believe in him, you get to spend eternity with him in heaven, with an all-holy, all-powerful Abba Father who loves you. That's the story of our Jesus. But the problem is, so often we get grace confused. And we don't really necessarily understand what grace means. Because, see, we'll say things like, I'm a sinner and I'm saved by grace. I'm a sinner and I'm saved by grace. I want to tell you that biblically that's not true. Biblically, the Bible says you're no longer a sinner. Your identity is no longer a sinner. You are no longer guilty. Because if you were, Jesus wouldn't have to hang on the cross. It would be pointless. It would be pointless. We have this idea of grace and works very confused, and we still think, I have to live up to something in order to get eternity with Jesus, and it's wrong. I heard a pastor this past week, Robert Morris, was speaking, and he was talking about, he was talking about grace and works, and he said, wow, that was weird. I could hear myself. That was strange. It's like, yes, Lord. Oh, it's me. But he was talking about grace and works. And one of the things that he said is, if you even think that 1% of you getting into heaven is about works, then Jesus is pointless. 1%. 99% grace, 1% me. Jesus is pointless. He shouldn't have come. That's like me going to the elders and saying, hey, I, I did the work, I preached, I did what I was supposed to do these last two weeks, and they say, yeah, we want to give you this gift, and they pay me. That doesn't make sense. That's not a gift. That's, that's mine. <laughs> I, I earned that. I worked for that. But what if I'm sitting working here, and suddenly Yesway comes over and pays me for working these last two weeks, and I've never stepped foot in a Yesway? That's grace. <laughs> And that's what Jesus is saying. It's not about anything you've done, anything you didn't do. It's about me. I am grace. And grace cancels our guilt. We're no longer guilty. Isaiah chapter 6. This is a foreshadowing of Jesus, I believe. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. Isaiah is having a, a vision in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. That's a very incredible picture, honestly. That'll confuse you, though. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Isaiah sees God. He, in his vision, he sees this image and this worship of God, and his response is not, wow, that's cool. Like, huh, look, that's, that's God. He says, Woe to me. He had no idea how beautiful and awesome and holy our God is until he saw him and he says, oh, 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 woe to me. Woe to me. And he instantly realizes his sin. He instantly realizes he is so holy. 
He is physically so holy. And I'm a sinner. Let's keep going. Verse 6, Then one of the seraphs flew, flew to me with a live coal in his hand. Some, some versions say a hot coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt has been taken away and your sin has been atoned for. And then that next verse, Isaiah 6, 8, is one of the most popular verses literally in, in the modern day. But it only comes after his guilt has been canceled and his sin has been atoned for by this hot coal, this live coal, live coal. I'm going to tell you, I believe he's foreshadowing when Jesus, our live coal, came down and the moment that he touches us, our guilt is canceled. Our guilt is canceled and our sin is atoned for. And because of that, the next verse says, who shall I send? And he says, send me. Because of that, we still can be with God Almighty. We still can work for and partner with and be in relationship with God Almighty because of the live coal that is Jesus Christ. That He came. Grace cancels guilt. Grace cancels our guilt. The enemy wants to take you on a trip. A guilt trip. He wants to take you on a cruise. All right? Hop on his little cruise to guilt land. Okay? That's what he wants to do for your life. And every stop and every, every time you have to fill up for gas on a cruise ship, I don't know what you do on cruise ships, but every time you have to do anything and every port, it's just you visiting another area of your life that you feel guilt and that you feel shame. Remember when this happened? Okay. Remember when you did this? Remember when he did that to you? Remember when he said that to you? And every time, everywhere you go, this is what he's wanting to do. Make you feel shame. I want to tell you that the answer to getting off of that cruise ship, the guilt trip, is to jump off the boat into a sea of God's grace. Because the moment that we're off that boat and swimming in the grace of God, the guilt is gone. It's been canceled. We don't have to live in shame. We don't have to live in guilt because of the grace of God. But we have to understand that grace. You can't earn it. You can't do enough. You can't not do enough. It's not like you can do so many bad things, but you also can't do so many good things. You can't earn it. It's free. And it's for you. Grace cancels our guilt. The enemy likes to make us feel guilty when we're in church. Have you noticed this? When we come to church and we know that the last time, you know, last night we were doing something we shouldn't have done, or this last week we said something to somebody we shouldn't have said, or, or we did something, it's like, and you'll sit down and instantly, you shouldn't be here. You, you don't belong here. What if they knew? What if they knew? what you had done? What if they knew that 20 years ago you said that or 20 years ago you spent time because you did that? What if they knew? I'm going to tell you something. The moment that these thoughts start creeping in your head, we have to start fighting them. You can tell there's children in here, so I'm not going to say like the S-H-U-T-U-P just because I don't know where your children are at. But we need to tell that to the enemy. It, stop! The Word of God says that because of what Jesus did for me on the cross, 
That's not true. I can sit in this pew. I belong here. I'm going to tell the enemy, enough. Enough is enough. You cannot keep making me feel bad. My king died to set me free. The only way to freedom from shame is to walk with Jesus. And you can acknowledge with Him, I've done some things, I've said some things, but I'm with you. And I hear freedom's bells ringing, and they're saying my name. And because of that, I am free. I'm free from guilt, and I'm free from shame. All right, last point. Grace redefines us. Grace redefines us. Often we've identified ourselves as failures. And grace redefines us from failure to family. From failure to family. I'm going to read you really quickly. There are some things in the Bible, and I'm not, I don't have the references. I can, I can tell them to you if you need them. But these are some things that the Bible says about you. He says you're wonderfully made. Wonderfully made. You are wonderfully made. You're chosen. You're royalty. The Bible says that you're holy. He says that you're family. The Bible says that you are new. You are a new creation. You are new. The old things that you've done, the past that you're running from, it says it's gone. You are made new. Every single day that you wake up and you continue to choose Jesus, you are made new. The Bible actually calls you a crown that Jesus wants to wear on his head. A crown. He says you're not condemned. He says you're his workmanship. Grace redefines us. It allows us to live shame-free, not as slaves, but as children. And I'm going to show you, as we close, an example of grace in action. John chapter 21. John chapter 21. Jesus is having breakfast. But in order to tell you why Jesus is having breakfast and what is so important about this breakfast, I'm going to take you back. Jesus is now risen from the dead, and he's visiting with his disciples, which, by the way, that's crazy. (laughs) But he's visiting with his disciples. But I want to talk about Peter for a second. Simon Peter is, is this one that this boy had some pride in his life. I'll tell you that. The disciples had pride. They had some sin sometimes, and this guy had some some pride in his life, and Jesus is sitting with them several chapters back, and he says, hey, I just want you to know that this is going to happen, and by the way, you're all going to deny me. You're going to pretend that you've never heard of me, that, that you don't know me, that we're not friends, that we're not sitting here having this meal. Y'all are going to deny me. And Peter, with his ego, looks at the king of kings, the knower of all, and says, you're wrong. It's not going to happen. I, that, that will never happen. I, I, will, I will never deny you. And, and Jesus, in his grace, looks back at him and says, all right, I'm sorry, but you are. It, it's just going to happen. And Peter, it says more emphatically, says, no, you're wrong. I just, at this point, I just wish that I could look at Peter and be like, what? Are you kidding me? It's Jesus. You've seen the things that he's done. You think he's wrong? You honestly think that he's wrong, but he continues to fight him. And then Jesus is being taken away, and, he, and he's being hung on a cross. And three times, Peter denies knowing him, denies being in relationship with him, denies being connected to him in any way. The Bible says he even curses. He even says, there is no blanking way that I, that I know him. That's denial, by the way, so 
So Jesus was right. He denied him. And then Jesus dies. He goes in, in, in the grave and he rises again. And then we get to this point in, in John chapter 21. And I'm going to skip through the first 14 verses. But basically, they're out there fishing. They're out there fishing and they, and they see Jesus. And I have to put myself in Peter's shoes for just a second. One of my best friends, the person I was following, I believe is the Messiah. I lied to him. I betrayed him. He probably looked down at me when he was hanging on the cross. And in Peter's mind, he has to be thinking, this is not going to be good. This is not going to be pretty. He's about to tear me a new one. But Jesus says, hey, bring some fish over. And, and Jesus has a little campfire on the beach. And they're having this, this breakfast on the beach. And that's where I'm going to start at, at verse 15. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, you had to know that had to be the most awkward breakfast ever. They're sitting here thinking, this is a ghost. <laughs> and he just made us fish <laughs> for breakfast. What in the world? And Peter this whole time is still thinking, what is Jesus about to say to me? I, I denied him. I hurt him. I stabbed him in the back. What is he about to say to me? When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? And, and, and scholars believe that he's not talking about, do you truly love me more than these others love me? They think he's talking about, do you love me more than the things in your life? Do you love me more than the fish, more than the boats? I almost caught the Bible on fire. More than all these things. Do you love me more? Do you love me more? He says, yes, Lord. You know that I love you. I think Peter was expecting a different question from Jesus. Like, Peter, what in God's name were you thinking? <laughs> Are you kidding me? Why did you look at me and not say that you knew me? You said that you would go to your grave with me, but you denied me. All these things Peter's probably thinking Jesus is going to say, but Jesus says, do you love me? And he says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus says, feed my lambs. Feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? Simon's got to be thinking, what in the world is this conversation? <laughs> Two times he's asked me if I love him. He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, take care of my sheep. Then the third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time. Are you kidding me, Peter? You're hurt because he asked you three questions. <laughs> Come on. But let's stop being victims, Peter. <laughs> Peter's like, oh, you hurt my feelings. <laughs> no. Okay. I'm on a roll today. I'm sorry. Peter was hurt. He said, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Jesus could have shamed him. He could have hurt him. He could have called him out. He could have killed him. He could have done anything he wanted to at that breakfast. But instead, he made the decision to restore him. He wanted to restore him. He says, do you love me? Because that's what matters. And then the, the, the hard part that I kept struggling with as I was studying is I thought, why is he talking about his sheep? I kept thinking, why, why does he keep bringing up the sheep? Take care of my sheep. Feed my sheep. Do this with my sheep. And I realized it's because he's like, I still want to be with you. I still want to partner with you. Help me feed my sheep. I still want to be in this relationship with you. Help me take care of my sheep. Do you love me? Help me. Help me. Be with me. He completely ignores the fact that Peter denied him three times. 
He completely ignores it. And he says, do you love me? And I think that Jesus sometimes asks this to us. When we live in our sin and we live in our hurt and we live in our, our, our pain of the things that we've done and the things that have been done to us, he looks at us and he just says, do you love me? Do you love me? Let's, let's get better. Let's get restored. Your family, you're not a failure. Let's get restored. Jesus is saying to you today, I believe, I know the past. I know what's been done to you. I know what you did, but that's not who you are. I know that you've buried things deep, but it's not who you are. I know all of these things about you, but it's not who you are. You are mine. You are my family. We have to believe that. We have to trust in the grace that Jesus lived for and died for. Your past doesn't define you. You are defined by His grace. Let's pray. Jesus, we love You. We are so thankful for Your grace. We're so thankful for the ways that You love us and the ways that You care for us. God, I just pray if there's people walking in here with with guilt and, and struggling with shame, I just pray that You would bring that to the surface, Lord. Bring that to the surface so that we can be healed and be free from it. God, we thank you for the pool of grace that we can swim in and live in for free because of what you've done. Lord, I just thank you that you love us so much that you did send Jesus. And I pray that we would not forget. We would not forget that sacrifice. You are good and you are faithful and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.